Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Well, today's the day. We're going to finish up our series of the Fruits of the Spirit. And in preparation for this week's message, I came across a story that I kind of want to share with you about a stunt pilot who was selling rides in his single-engine airplane. And one day he got into an argument with a pastor who insisted on taking his wife along at no extra charge. Don't get mad. <laughs> Not wanting to miss out on a chance to make some cash, the pilot said, I'll take you both up for the price of one if you promise not to utter a sound during the entire flight. If you make any noise, the price is doubled. So the deal was made and they climbed aboard that plane. And the pilot quickly proceeded to put the plane through all sorts of stunts and maneuvers designed to make the uh, bravest person tremble. But the passengers didn't make a sound. And exhausted, the pilot finally said, I made moves up there that frightened even me, and yet you never said a word. You must be and must have an incredible self-control. The pastor thanked the pilot, and then he said, I must admit that there was one time when you almost had me. The pilot asked, well, when was that? To which the man replied, when my wife fell out of the plane. I know, I'll pay for that later. <laughs> so this morning, let's talk about self-control. The, the final virtue in this fruit salad of the fruit of the Spirit. And as we come to the last but not least fruit of the Spirit, let's read Galatians 5, 22 and 23 for the last time together. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 together. Ready? No? That's okay. I'm here all day. <laughs> but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now I realize that some of you have a version that might have said something different. I understand that. What is self-control? How do you define self-control? Each of the um, different characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit focuses on how we respond to God and how we treat each other uh, when we're in the midst of friends, family, and even strangers. How we treat each other. Now, 
vertically while peace, patience, and kindness, goodness, and gentleness bear directly on how we interact with others. And of course, the juiciest of these fruits was at the center of that spiritual fruit salad, which is what? Love. Love. Um, it has both a horizontal and vertical dimension. Now, nestled among the Spirit's produce is the seemingly out-of-place fruit of self-control. Because this characteristic of a Christ follower seems to focus more on me instead of on my relationships with other people. I can exercise self-control when I'm the only person in the house. Now, I have to admit to you that the beginning of this series, I was feeling pretty good. I was like, okay, you know, I can, I demonstrate here, I demonstrate here. The last three have been very convicting for me. I don't know about you, but they have been very, very convicting. And this one also is very convicting for me because I fail in a lot of these areas. Ask my wife. Ask my children. But it's something that I strive to get better at. And this is where God comes in and is able to step in and take care of these things in my life. But I have to allow him to do that. That means in order for me to demonstrate self-control, I have to get rid of self. I have to get rid of self. So like I said, nestle among the Spirit's produce is the out-of-place one of self-control. The hidden private moments when no one else is looking is precisely when we need self-control the most. Would you agree with that? However, if we properly exercise the fruit of self-control, it will benefit those around us. In some ways, we might consider this virtue the most important because this virtue is without self-control. The works of the flesh cannot be overcome. And the other elements of the fruit of the Spirit will not be evident. That's a scary statement for me. I'm going to read that one again. It says, if we do not properly exercise the fruit of of the spirit of self-control, the others are not present in our life. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. When the Greeks wanted to illustrate self-control, they built a statue of a man or woman in perfect proportion. And to them, self-control was the proper ordering and balancing of the individual. Aristotle once said, I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who conquers his enemies. For the hardest victory is the victory over self. Plato believed that our animal urges must be governed or else they will produce a feverish state in the soul, a city of pigs, which knows no limits. So when we're not self-controlled, our life is like a pigsty. Have that image in your head? 
The word translated self-control in the New International Version, and I don't normally go to that version. Uh, I strictly send the kids to that version. But in this version, it is rendered as temperance. Temperance. In the King James Version, it comes from the word strength. Strength. And it means one who holds himself or herself in. To be self-controlled is to not live in bondage to desires, passions, and appetites of the flesh. In other words, my body is a good servant, but a miserable master. And while self-control is a good translation of the Greek word, it is a bit deceiving because we all know that we can't control ourselves simply through our own willpower. We've talked about this in the last few weeks. We cannot control our own willpower or our self-determination. So self-control is more than just self-help. Paul speaks of our dilemma in Romans chapter 7 verse 18 which says, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. And we can get a fuller meaning of self-control from Paul's extended discussion of his ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And in this passage, Paul contrasts exercising control over his body with running aimlessly in verse 26. He argues that athletes exercise self-control because they have a clearly defined purpose or a goal. They cannot afford to be distracted. As Christians, we cannot afford to be distracted. But what are we most often? Are we distracted by the world? Sure. Are we distracted by external forces? Of course. But the scary part of it is, I think we're distracted by our own selves. We're distracted by our own selves. So, in order to fully understand this fruit... It's helpful that we describe what the absence of self-control looks like. Turn to Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. Proverbs 25, 28. But as you're turning there, this provides a dramatic description of the individual living out of control or living out of self-control. When the book of Proverbs was written, one of the main sources of strength and protection for a city consisted in the building and the maintaining of walls. A wiped out wall was considered a breach in security. And a city with walls in disrepair was a city with a shameful reputation. But what does 2528 say? Someone read that out loud for me. Go ahead. He that has no rule over his own spirit is like a 
See? That's it. So what does that say to us as a Christian? How should we be presenting ourselves? How should we be presenting ourselves? And that's one of the reasons Nehemiah was so motivated to begin a building campaign in the first chapter. He said those who lived in the capital were in great trouble and disgrace. Because the wall of Jerusalem was so broken down, it was open to attack and ultimate destruction. The man or woman who lacks self-restraint is like a city that has no effective defense. They are not able to resist those things and the lives of others. When occupants of a city, for whatever reason, neglected their own safety by failing to build and maintain strong walls, they would have looked upon, or they would have been looked upon as weak and foolish people. Likewise, when we forfeit the fruit of self-control, we are feeble and we are not wise. The Bible offers several vivid examples of people who lived out of control lives. One of the most dramatic stories is of Samson found in Judges 14 through 16. We all know the story. But he is a portrait of self-destruction. As one of Israel's judges, the Spirit of God empowered him. He was known for his strength and led God's people for 20 plus years. And one of his primary tasks was to protect his people from the influence of the pagan Philistines. But because he did not have self-control, he eventually told Delilah about the secret of his power. Lacking self-control, he soon lost his hair, his strength, and eventually his life. King Saul was another man with a deficit in self-control. He was so determined to destroy David that his life spun completely out of control. 1 Samuel 21 through 23. You see, he ignored the important things in his life in order to chase David. And he chased David all over the place. And, and David, on the other hand, demonstrated remarkable self-control when he had the opportunity to kill Saul. So instead of allowing his passions to control him, in 1 Samuel 24, uh, verse 6, David says, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Tragically, several years later, when David is king, his self-control kind of goes out the window. He commits adultery and murders. He, he, goes, he goes on a spree, as we call it. But I find it interesting in the New Testament that when Paul had the privilege of presenting the gospel to Felix, a Roman governor, he chose to emphasize righteousness, 
self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix had no self-control, and he had indulged in all kinds of cruelty and lust, committing both murder and adultery. Felix was no different than many others in the Roman Empire, as we know. Scholars tell us that when ancient Rome was disciplined and controlled, it was a great nation. But when it became saturated in its own sin, it lost its glory. Drunkenness, orgies, and an anything-goes mindset took over, and they imploded upon themselves. The decline of the Roman Empire went hand-in-hand with self-indulgence. I wonder if America is going down that same road. Felix responded to Paul's preaching like many of us do today. The second half of Acts 24-25 reveals that he was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You, you may leave. Like I can't take any more. Some of you say that when I get approached the 12 o'clock hour. We've had enough. Let's go home. Part two next week, right? Unfortunately, some of us have allowed our walls to be broken down. Instead of governing our desires and appetites, most of us are bingers by nature. Some of us binge on food. Don't look at me. Don't judge. Some on sleep. Others on work. And still others on TV, sports, spending. Acts 24-25. Solomon reminds us of the importance of keeping a watch on how we're doing. And in Proverbs 4-23. Above all else, guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. So, we need to take an inventory. As we look at our lives, as we look at our relationship to the Lord, we have to take a self-control inventory in order to see where we are at. So, are you struggling with self-control in any of these areas that are addressed in the book of Proverbs. Uncontrolled lust, Proverbs 6.26, for the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread, and the adulteress preys upon your very life. Uncontrolled spending, Proverbs 21.20, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. But a foolish man devours all he has. Uncontrolled ambition. Proverbs 23, 4. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Uncontrolled drinking. Proverbs 23, 29 through 30. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? 
Those who linger over wine who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Uncontrolled anger. Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. This is a very simple message. And it's one that I have found pastors love to preach because they can be done in 10 minutes. <laughs> Much to, you're excited already, right? We can be done with this message in about five minutes. The rules are simple. The application is very, very hard. As we all know, we all succumb to our desires. We all succumb to the sin in our life many times, multiple times, sometimes. We're all guilty of that. The question becomes is how do we obtain enough self-control that we can rid that in our lives? When we become one with God, when we take out self, self-control is not having any control at all. Understand that. We should not possess any control of our life. It is not our own. But when we put God front and center, and it becomes, like I read earlier, God control. That's when he can bless us. That's when he can step in, mediate for us, and take that sin out of our life. Too much, too much time we spend thinking about self. Too much time we think about how things can profit me. How things can benefit my life. Make things easier. But God says when we focus our eyes upon him, all that fades. It becomes, what can I do for you today, Lord? And in turn, he blesses us with riches. He blesses us with opportunities to give that to someone else. Sometimes it's just a friendly word. Sometimes it's a phone call. Sometimes it's a visit. Sometimes it's not saying anything at all. That's a hard one for me. Not saying anything at all. There is a premier passage that we have that we can refer to to help us in this process. Because it is possible to display self-control in a self-centered, self-seeking culture. Understand that. It is possible for us to have self-control in a world where it is completely self-centered and self-seeking. And I would venture to say that most of us in this room need it and we want it. And some of us may feel like there's no hope. Perhaps you've tried to control these areas but have struck out so many times that you just feel like giving up. 
before you throw in the towel, please reference to the premier passage of self-control in the New Testament, Titus chapter 2. Everyone turn there. Titus chapter 2. I want you to underline it, mark it, keep it handy. Titus chapter 2. You see, the young pastor, Titus, did not have an easy assignment on the island of Crete. Crete was filled with saloons, as well as known as the first century party place. There's an issue of Newsweek, and they ran an article called The Road to Rave. The Road to Rave. And it talked about young adults who are flocking to spots around the world seeking to do indiscriminate things. We all know those things. Bring It On is an internet-based company that caters to 20-somethings that like to be club-goers. Don't ask me how I know this. I'm not 20 anymore, so it's okay. It operates under the motto... On the beach till 7 p.m., in the clubs till 9 a.m. Crete was a lot like that. It was a party place populated by people whom Paul describes in Titus chapter 1 as liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Temptations abounded and tripped up some of the new Christians with whom Titus worked in the Cretan congregation. These new babes in Christ had come out of this raucous world around them. Each of them had friends who were still participating in the debauchery and all these things for which Crete was famous for. This was not an easy place to win converts to Christ, nor was it an easy place for believers to maintain their purity and self-control in their lives. With that in mind, it's no surprise to find Paul's brief letter to Titus numerous admonitions to seize self-control. Instead of acting crazy with no restraint at all, Paul challenges four groups of people to be in their right minds by being controlled by the Spirit of God. First, in Titus 1.8, elders are to be men who are known for their hospitality, good works, holiness, discipline, and self-control. Secondly, in 2.1, Titus is to teach the older men to be self Controlled, And then the next verse. Older women are to be reverent, truth-tellers, and not addicted to alcohol. As they teach what is good, verse 4 then challenges them to train younger women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled. And fourthly, in verse 6 in, the chap- in chapter 2. Titus is to be an example to young men and to encourage them to be self-controlled. 
The final verses in this chapter give us the solution to out-of-control lives. It's not enough to just try and do it on your own. It alludes to the fact that we desperately need God's power and His grace. Look at, look at verses 11 through 14 in chapter 2 in Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. We have to be eager to do what is good. If we can't even get over that hump, we're going to fail. In other words, get out of your own way. Leave self at the door. Let God be in control. The emphasis in this passage and the key to seizing self-control is a five-letter word we all know very well. And that's grace. Grace. God's lavish favor poured upon us, all of us, all of us undeserving sinners. But you see, this grace does three things for us. First, it reminds us that there is no way that we can save ourselves. God took the initiative and brought salvation to us. Verse 14 explains that Christ gave himself for us. He paid the price to buy us back from the shackles of sin. Secondly, it reforms us. Salvation not only changes our position before God, we've also been given a change in attitude, appetite, ambition, and action. We've been given freedom from the condemnation of sin, and we also have freedom from the domination of sin. Warren Worsby writes that the same grace that redeems us also reforms our lives and makes us godly. God is training us through the Holy Spirit to be this kind of person. Train us to be that kind of people that bring glory to God. Notice in verse 12 that we can say no to ungodliness and passions. To be self-controlled is to restrain ourselves by not giving in to our depraved desires. We can say yes for all the wrong reasons. We deny worldly lusts, and when we withhold our consent from them, and when we refuse the delight they suggest, God will give us the ability to withstand those temptations, and will provide a way of escape as to not to become too severe. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
His reforming grace also allows us to say yes by working on the positive, by living those self-control, upright, and godly lives. In this present age, since we've been redeemed from this world, we don't have to be conformed to it. I'm going to say that again. We do not have to be conformed to it. In fact, we can be eager to do what is good, according to verse 14. There are seven practical ways that we can both say no to which is destructive and say yes to what is helpful. First of all, we must admit that we have a problem with self-control. We have a problem. Second, we yield to the Lordship of Christ. Galatians 5.16, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Thirdly, we cultivate we cultivate the disciplines of Bible reading and prayer. Bible reading and prayer. We invest in spiritual friendships. Ecclesiastes 4:10. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Fifth, we curtail bad influences. That was always a common excuse when I lived the life of a sinner. Oh, well, he made me do it. He's doing it, so I'm going to go ahead and participate because I don't want to be left out. We must curtail bad influences. We avoid those things that tempt us. 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad influences company corrupts good character. Sixth, we practice good habits. We practice good habits. Job 31.1 says that Job made a covenant with his eyes not to gaze lustfully at a woman. We must practice good habits. And finally, we welcome gracious Correction. We welcome it. Things that would have ended differently for Samson if he had listened to those who warned him to let God control his desires. We do this because grace rewards us. We can have self control because we've been redeemed from the way we used to live. We've also been reformed on the inside and have the power to actually change. It reminds us that the return of Jesus is our only hope and glory. Instead of living for today, we live for what is to come. This is in stark contrast to pleasure seekers who live only for this life and what it has to offer them. Knowing that we'll see Jesus face to face should give us the ability to live spirit-controlled lives today. And while we wait in hopeful expectation, we'll discover a powerful antidote to those worldly 
lusts and passions. Richard Foster writes, Do it again. Longings have their proper place. Self-control is the Holy Spirit's baton in our hearts under whose skillful, skillful direction everything will stay in its proper place. And we will become self-control as we allow the Spirit to lead us. We remove self. There is no way we can develop self-control on our own. It's almost like an oxymoron here. To possess self-control, we must get rid of self. The Christians on Crete faced long odds as we do as well. But there are more than enough people pulling us back into unrestrained living. And the good news is that you don't have to give in to them or into your own desires. You can submit and surrender to the Spirit's control. You can experience freedom and power that you've not seen before. You see, we think of self-control as a legalistic virtue. If we follow the law, we'll be okay. We can resist, resist temptation if we follow the law. I don't know about you, but I quickly learn it doesn't matter what the law says, we still break the law. As Paul tells us the fruit of the Spirit, he concludes by saying in Galatians 5.23, against such things there is no law. In other words, there is no law that can produce these virtues, and certainly not self-control. So, we need to understand self-control is directly connected to God control. And self-control, again, like I said, is an oxymoron. It's really God control. We need to remember that it is God who is in control. We are not God and we are not in control. Can you say that with me? We are not God and we are not in control. And to experience God's presence and give control of life to God, we need to firstly embrace a relationship with Jesus Christ. Then we need to give God ownership of our lives. We surrender our lives to God and give God the control. So we will say, I have the power to control that myself. We've all said it. We've all done it. You'll say, I have the willpower. But in reality, we should be saying, I have the power through Christ to control myself. So we look at what Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 2. Like I said, keep that as a reference point. After describing how we should live our lives, 
using that self-control, he then wraps it up by saying, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Understand that it is grace that teaches us to say no to that ungodliness and unworldly passions and to live self-control upright lives. It's not the law. It's the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And living this God-controlled life we know is not easy because society tells us and knows that we struggle with self-control. They advertise directly at our lack of control. If they didn't, they wouldn't make the food look so good. I mean, I've never thought the food looks as good after I buy it, but the pictures sure look good, don't they? Of course, they want you to play the lottery, too. They make that real appealing. But do you notice that when they sell these tickets and these scratchers and all these things, it says at the end of these commercials by saying, play responsibly. You ever notice that? Play responsibly. Really? I want to win. That's what they're saying, right? We want to win. How about every alcohol commercial? They end with drink responsibly. Now, they don't want you to get into an accident, but... Really now? They are marketing to your lack of self-control. The key to displaying each of these nine character qualities known as the fruit of the Spirit is not to try harder. Understand that. It is not to try harder, but to understand the short phrase that appears right after the spiritual fruit salad in Galatians 5.23. Against such things there is no law. And this means that there is these characteristics that cannot be legislated or enforced by a set of rules. You can't make somebody be kind or patient or gentle. Likewise, no law can keep us from displaying luscious fruit in our lives. The only thing that is keeping us from allowing his fruit to ripen in our own selfishness and sinfulness We got to get rid of self. We get rid of self. I want to close with a a powerful reminder. It says this. While Christ's work on the cross was the only way to settle the problem of guilt, sin, and condemnation, the coming of the promised Holy Spirit was God's way of changing human beings from the inside out. The law given to Moses had failed on this very point. It was in itself holy and just, but the problem was the sinful nature within the people. Now the Holy Spirit dwelling in the hearts of believers would conquer the age-old dilemma of, I want to be different but can't. I know what's wrong, but I keep doing it anyway. 
This empowerment by the Spirit would be the dynamic source throughout time for all who live and labor for Jesus Christ. So let's allow the Holy Spirit to empower us on a daily basis. We don't have to go up in a plane to seize self-control. We have plenty of opportunities right here on the ground, which is where I want to stay for a little while. But I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Spirit's promptings this morning. So I want you to close your eyes, if you would. I'm going to read a few verses from Galatians and then ask you a couple questions. But I want you, again, keep your eyes closed. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Are you living by the Spirit? Or are you trying to do it on your own? And are you keeping in step with the Spirit? Or is your life out of control? My prayer for you this morning is that we figure out the answers to these questions. And they lie within God's control. They lie within God's control. Get out of your own way and allow God to step in. Amen. Dave, come and lead us this morning.
we leave, I have another presentation for you. One that I didn't even know we needed, but one that I've wanted for a long time. So I'm going to ask Kenny and Deborah, come on up. Deborah made a phone call to me, I guess it was a couple weeks ago now, and expressed interest in leading our widow's ministry, to which I looked up and realized they were not members. And I've been coming to this church for, what, 17 years now? And you guys were there the whole time. As far as I know, you were in and out, and I just assumed they were members. So there you go. What happens when you assume, right? But Kenny and Deborah come before the church this morning seeking membership with us and getting involved right away. So, amen to that. What say you? Yes. All in favor? Aye. And it's done. Now you don't have to give her dirty looks that why we're not no. members of the church. Part of the conversation we had is it made her feel bad because every time we weren't becoming members, she said, Kenny would give me dirty looks. This is our church. This is where we belong. So we're welcoming you here now. So before we leave today, come and welcome them into our fellowship as they've been here forever, but welcome them on their decision. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for the ability to not be self-centered in a world that clearly is. Lord, when we get out of our way and we allow you to control things, wonderful things can happen. We love you and we thank you. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day, Lord. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on Him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to Him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org. Org.